getting from here to Neptune in six minutes. It's Viger, please. My name is Joseph. And I'm your co-host, Peter. Welcome back, everybody, to our regular broadcast schedule. We appreciate your patience. And if you're brand new to the show, welcome as well. This is probably going to be a great place to pick things up because... Peter and I, we specialize in reviewing Star Trek. We have just finally finished all of Star Trek Voyager. We have given the real talk, so to speak, the highs, the low lows, the the, the good, the bad, the, the ultra nerdy, very nerdy. We have enjoyed that experience. All of those episodes, go listen to them. If you haven't, please go enjoy. Uh, but we are beginning a brand new journey as of today, and that is on Star Trek Enterprise, which I think, Peter, you're going into 100% cold. You didn't watch really Voyager ever before, but may have seen a little things here and there. I went back in anticipation for this, and I listened to Season 1, Episode 1, Voyager groin area uh, when we started the Voyager review. And I said that out of all the Star Trek properties, that Voyager was the one I'd watch at least. I said that in ignorance because... Half the time I forget that Enterprise even exists. <laughs> I think that's most I people. absolutely saw more Voyager flipping through channels than I did Enterprise. I have watched 0. 0.0 seconds of Enterprise, and I've got j- just sitting down to watch. The first lines in my notebook is that I have had in the past zero desire to watch Enterprise. Preparing to, to turn it on, I have zero desire to watch Enterprise. <laughs> and had it not been for this podcast, I would be uh, dead and happy in my grave when that time comes, having never seen a second of this, had it not been for this fucking podcast. You know, once upon a time, we used to be a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. We're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to call this exactly. So if anybody out there has ideas, we're game, but... It's going to be a rocky start, man, I think. Ooh, okay. This is rough because I was about to praise this episode. Uh, Well, how about this? Before we even get into that, for anybody who's new, here's the ground rules, right? Joe's seen all the Star Trek. Every single episode of Broadcast Trek. I'm also a big fat nerd, but I only really watched uh, Next Gen as it came out, and I was real deep in the weeds on Next Gen. I caught Voyager back. Starting when, when we start, 2017? 2018. 2018. Yeah. I've seen no Enterprise. We both love Star Trek, but we are both happy to have good laughs at the expense of bad Star Trek. So we're not here to hate just for the sake of a joke. And we're not here to... Oh, also, if you got kids in the room, turn us off right now. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to be safe for work or sometimes for life. We ch- we try to keep it at a at maximum of 75% of our true power. Uh, but at the same time, uh, children need not apply. So we're not here to hate for the sake of a joke. And we're also not here to suck dick, you know, in, in hopes that somehow we're going to catch on to wild stardom and, you know, get in the pocket of CBS, whoever the, the leash holders at this point. We'll call the shitty stuff out and laugh. We'll praise the good stuff, and we're going to have fun in all the in-between. We give the real talk, which means when the show's good, and I honestly thought this was, I'm going to say so. out of here. Yeah, no. Not only did I, I, I liked it, Stevie loved it. Stevie was more into this than I think sh- most episodes of Voyager that we ever watched together. I would say you might want to 
check and see if there's a gas leak in the house yeah. with some carbon Maybe. monoxide detectors. It could be that she was replaced by a pod person, perhaps a Salubian. Oh, hey, look at you. Yeah. <laughs> but a little, a little like uh, perhaps run up to Enterprise overall. The reason you never saw the show is two reasons. One, it only lasted four seasons. Shortest run out of all of Berman Air Trek. Did not get the full seven. And, and the second key reason is that it had an extremely short syndicated life because the syndication contract that included Enterprise after it was canceled only included the package for like a year and a half and then it was replaced by all of the HD redone versions of the original series instead. <laughs> so this show just never had a shot at really like developing that uh, that hold that, that these shows following that that shows can get in in syndication and it obviously didn't have a very long broadcast life to begin with so how do you shit the bet on that i mean these things are expensive and uh i'll tell you right now if you're not familiar with memory alpha that's like wikipedia's neck beardy star trek obsessed cousin we will go heavy into memory alpha and I've read the entry on this one a couple times now. There is a lot of money getting thrown at this thing. I believe uh, Rick Berman said it was the most expensive Star Trek pilot. Spoiler alert, they wasted that money. And I think they should have <laughs> maybe held back a little bit. But it's not like this was a, a half-assed cop-out. No, they, there was high were... effort. High effort. So you're going to dump all this money into something. And you're not going to have the opportunity to monetize it on the back end like what the fuck we'll have ample opportunity over the course of the next couple of years as we go through the show to discuss why it had an abbreviated death but it really wasn't the show's fault it was i'm talking just a syndication thing you're talking about the ratings never were super good for the show and there was no cultural cachet behind it the same way that there was a demand for the original series so swapping it out in the syndication package made a lot of sense uh, but also the reason why the show got canceled was that the UPN as a network folded. So this was part of, of the network, the package that Paramount was creating for their broadcast network primetime programming. And then they merged with the WB to create the CW in 2005, 2006. And so this was a casualty. The new creation was much more like the WB and that kind of, uh, young adult to teen programming kind of mix. And this was not going to fit in. I'm really going to be interested as we get through this and we start seeing some commentary from our listeners. Uh, we're going to take this chance here to plug our Facebook group, which is Vidra Police Trauma Support Group. Look us up on Facebook. It's a private group. So your grandma and crazy racist uncle doesn't have to see you. <laughs> Geeking out on Star Trek on the internet. My biggest takeaway from Voyager, uh, beyond the my own capacity to really enjoy, if not love the product at the end, was just the penetration that Voyager had overseas. Uh, just mind-blowing. UK area, especially all through Europe. Um, so you saying that Enterprise got stinted, like how many people out there just never really even maybe saw this thing outside the U.S. It will be interesting to kind of get a sense of that as we go through. That'll be a good question for everyone to answer for us. I, like I said, I liked this. I am a big Enterprise fan overall. I guess it's worth rehashing that 
where I've come into this with a much more positive opinion of the show overall versus Voyager. I think that like a lot of first seasons, this first season is a rough one, uh, but the dramatic increase in quality is apparent. And there's a lot of things they do right in Enterprise, particularly, I think the acting talent is just overall better. Uh, there's a couple boring pieces of wood for us to pillory, and we will get to them very shortly. But they do, uh, I think, an overall better job of uplifting not only your main cast, but particularly the extended cast and guest cast tend to be stronger actors. And I think that that helped out a lot. Also, as as the very first frame of the episode shows us, this is the only Burma era Trek property shot native HD. So it's the only one you can watch in, uh, in, in, in native HD. There's the TNG remaster, of course, uh, but uh, DS9 and Voyager are only standard def. Yeah, which kind of added a charm to it at, at a certain point. I, let me let me wind things back here. Despite whatever I'm going to say about this, trying to keep in mind that all Star Trek first season if not first episode sucks yeah it does and you know voyager ended very strong season seven of voyager was great and and to frame what we're talking about here right we don't pull punches and we will go real nitty gritty with the criticisms here because that's what everybody signed up for okay this isn't a small little startup trying to get a break and hey cut these guys some slack like this is the star trek uh, global empire here right tng clawed itself out of the grave turned itself into excellent tv dovetailed right in ds9 which went super strong voyager had ups and it's down but i mean at this point they're going into this a well-oiled machine everybody knows what they're getting in everybody knows exactly what trek fans are and are not I think a lot of the actors actually kind of knew that going in too, particularly Scott Bakula. You know, our lead for this show is a known sci-fi actor who did a network TV sci-fi show for years. The the comments that are attributed to him, and particularly in the memory alpha for this episode, suggest that, you know, he kind of like kind of had a much better sense of what the fuck he was getting into because of that. And that was shared in part, at least in part by some of his coworkers who knew like, oh, I'm signing up for Trek. Okay. The internet exists. You can see videos of what Star Trek conventions look like. There's nobody you can say, all right, maybe uh, Frakes and Patrick Stewart and, um, you know, Brett Spiner. They didn't know exactly what they were getting into because it was the 80s and maybe Trek had cooled off a little bit like Everybody DS9 Ford knows goddamn well, like, this is what you're going to be known for when you die. And and it's a ruthless game. Perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the actor that spent the most time learning about Trek before, like, showing up to set on day one to really understand what she was getting into was actually Julie Blaylock, who plays to Paul. She apparently became the biggest Trek nerd on the planet in preparation for this role because she took it that seriously. There's, I think, other reasons why she was hired. <laughs> Two which, big ones, I'm going to say. Which this episode spares no expense in ensuring you get to see. 
that's another thing. The Voyager's sort of flirt flirtation with with uh, horny nerds vis-a-vis Seven of Nine is something that we commented on extensively starting with her arrival on to There's Voyager. two Voyager TV shows, and the one is the first half of the C- series, The Kess Years, where it's a very progressive TV show with a female lead. The, the captain is a female. You got the nerdy hybrid science officer. You've got the thoughtful yet naive young Jedi Kess, right? Right. And you work hard to establish yourself as like, this is the future of infinite diversity and everybody's got a fair shot. We're going to tell a story. And then the ratings fell out and they go, bring in the titties. Get get me Jerry Rod. Get me find super me the space. finest titties available. I want space Barbie wrapped up in tin foil and high heels. Uh, and as you pointed out, and as I will agree, they accidentally hired someone who's a great actor and really came through as one of the strongest points towards the end. But they misused her for a long time. And you know, even before they brought in seven and nine, Kess started end up in these velvet cat suits, and things would just get progressively more blatantly sexy, uh, which part of me very much enjoys and even more so would have enjoyed as a teenager. But uh, the the adult rational part of me says this is to the detriment of something that you built that was really great. And they're not even given Enterprise a chance to have that first season of like honest effort, like the amount of just low hanging fruit. TNA hot spots in this. Peter, they literally have a scene completely devoted to making sure that you get to see the hot Vulcan chick have oil rubbed all around her with as little clothing on as possible. They specifically made sure to put a scene in that made that happen. That the, and and I'm jumping forward in my notes here, but the, the butterfly strippers, Oh, the fucking coolers, light twins, right? (laughs) With latex on their titties. I get, listen, yeah. Okay, we're at some fucking intergalactic truck stop. There, there might be some titties out there. was at least there. a story frame around why that was happening. <laughs> like, But still, I mean, you didn't get to that point in Voyager until Underboob for Days, a.k.a. False Prophets, one of the top five worst Star Trek Voyager episodes of all times. And if you want to know the other four, please feel free to jump back an episode to our uh, <laughs> series R.I.P. where we discuss the entire thing. But... Um, it's it is just fucking shameless. And oh, yeah. I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that stuff specifically made this entire episode come off as just the most cheapest, shittiest, low budget sci fi original B film trash possible. All right, let's let's pause on this. We have so we have so much to talk about. We're 20 minutes in. We have not even gotten to the teaser of an hour and a half long episode. So let's dive in. All right, so this is an hour and a half episode, right? For starters. Feature length premiere. Uh, What'd they say? Like $11 million to produce this thing back Mm -hmm. in 2000 what? Made 60 sets. They really poured it all out there. Uh, Our air date on this is... It's so funny. They front load these memory alpha entries. This has got to be fucking 40 pages here and by the time we got like season seven on voyager it was like maybe half a paragraph on these oh yeah production date it was it was aired on september 26 2001 boy let's start there (laughs) 
Oh, wolf on the timing, right? Uh, whew. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> so uh, F's in chat, of course, because September 11, 2001 was quite a not a great time here in America. The show, like a lot of things that premiered after that, just kind of fell flat because no one really wanted to be entertained. Everyone was obviously very uh, absorbed by the news. Uh, obviously, this whole season had been produced before a terrorist a horrific terrorist attack happened in our country and so the show doesn't really like touch on it in any way as you'd expect uh how there is a later season of this the show that uh absolutely touches on it perhaps a bit too much uh yeah this is this is coming hot on the heels of some uh some pretty fresh trauma and uh you wonder if maybe that had impacted uh people's willingness to watch a bunch of hopeful sci-fi stuff <laughs> There was so much good stuff that came out around 9-11 that was just completely overshadowed and destroyed and never had a shot. And that's that'll be something for us to discuss at a later time. Because, I mean, you and I lived through it, right? As of yeah. this date, uh, February 3rd, 2022, I'm still 39 years old, man. That was my freshman year of college that this Same. shit went down. Yeah, I was also my freshman year of college. I was in D.C. too. I just just gotten there two weeks before, so... Uh, not a great time to move to the nation's capital. I grew up in the suburbs. You know, I had a very comfortable, safe, happy life. I was going to college and like the level of trauma that 9-11 brought on was just off the fucking charts. It was nothing anybody was prepared to deal with. Who Exactly what you're saying. Like, who gives a shit about fucking people up in space and some fantasy thing like this? Never had a chance. <laughs> show never had a chance. <laughs> Ever. Uh, but what you know who had a chance is young Jonathan Archer as he's painting his model. Because we start with essentially a flashback scene uh, with a young version of our protagonist. He's bonding with his dad. His dad's a warp scientist trying to make a, a, a new engine for a big spacecraft. Not big fans of of uh, Vulcans, apparently. Calling so him- this is what? 2020 2121 right correct uh you got this real norman rockwell-esque uh father-son experience like you're saying he's he's painting his model and they're getting ready dad tell me about your spaceship that you're building and and oh gee golly willikers i'm watching this and i'm like where where is the nuclear holocaust i was shown in encounter at far point where where is these judges with the fucking machine gun cocaine addicted troopers. Where is the fallout 76 Zephram Cochran uh, hellscape that we saw in first contact? Like what leaps and bounds these guys have made and what we'll come to find out. It's been what? A hundred years. Yeah. So this, years? this scene would have been 70 years after all of that stuff happened. So that's, I mean, there is an in-universe explanation for why it's not there. It's that that stuff's in the past. It's been 70 years of progress since in the main show because it takes place 30 years after this scene is 100. You could go from basically wasteland cannibalism <laughs> right back to, what, what's the Rockwell era stuff called? Golden era America, Americana? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all it takes is a little space magic from your pointy-eared friends. Yeah, the, the Vulcans came down. They helped kill off all the raiders and rad roaches. and Yeah, they just gave us all the 10 millimeter shells we needed for that starter pistol. <laughs> Listen, we've shit on the Star Trek timeline heavily. And 
I don't know who you want to blame if it's Roddenberry or someone else, but like it's just a fucking mess, period. You it set is. up what it's supposed to be and next gen, you carried it through and just Voyager, the movies, everybody has taken their turn shoving their dick into the mashed potatoes that is the Star Trek pre-Federation time period between right now and then also too, like as you pointed out, like they made this in the sixties, like yeah, so like twenty nineteen ninety eight was so far in the future as to be something incredibly mysterious. It's like when you watch fucking Blade Runner, <laughs> like it's like oh okay, that's this prediction didn't quite work out. <laughs> what the twenty twenties were gonna look like? Yeah, Atari. I'm okay with that. You just you patch it up how you can. That's I can part buy of it. being a fan is you gotta just suck it up and keep moving. So I'm well, sucking it up. Let's keep moving. Speaking of of guys who suck it up and keep moving, apparently uh, Klingons are so hardy that when they crash a starship in Oklahoma, they can just keep rolling Uh, because we cut the 30 years later. We are told via uh, text on the bottom of the screen. This is happening in uh, Broken Bow, Oklahoma, in someone's cornfield. And uh, there's a Klingon and he is running from uh, two very uh, limber dudes. I called them the silly putty boys for starters. (laughs) Yes. The, the they got this green speckled uh face scrotal covering on their face yeah they can kind of fit into anything and this klingon uh runs essentially into a a silo and then uh does the space really silo does the re- really smart oh, it's really a space silo it's a farmer's silo <laughs> like it is actually on a farm the only thing of space about it are the space guns that get shot at it <laughs> The space photon torpedo launchers. So the the Klingon who's running, um, TNG Klingons, huh? I know what you're thinking. I'm going to blow your mind. The origin of the TOS Klingons is literally a plot point in the series. Sure. I, and I mean, I, I will say nothing else. The real answer is that TOS Klingons look stupid, and that's why they even drift away from it in the movie and the next gen post DS9 especially. They got the makeup down packed. They look sweet. You don't fuck with it. There's no good reason to change what the TOS or the, the TNG Klingons look like. Do you hear me, Kurtzman and Discovery? <laughs> Leave the fucking Klingons alone. Uh, number two thing about this Klingon. Narrator, he did not, he did not hear you. <laughs> Note, if you are just joining us, not fans of, of Alex Kurtzman in this house. If that's your thing, I apologize, but I'm not sorry, if that makes sense. Avoid our Picard review. <laughs> yes, we tried reviewing Picard. We didn't finish. I hope that says everything. It didn't go well for us. Um, I, I pause it and I'm looking. I'm like, is that fucking Debo? It's Debo from Friday. Zeus from from WWF. It is. Yeah, I didn't. I did not look up who played the Klingon. It was obviously a very large man. That's Debo from Friday. That WWE connection has been made with Trek, as we all saw when The Rock showed up to uh, give the people's elbow to uh, Jerry Ryan. And uh, this is not the only wrestler, I suppose, that appears in this show, because the big show actually shows up later on. Tommy Tiny Lister Jr. I enjoyed him. That dude can hold down his uh, his Klingon speech later on. But yeah, so he runs through the cornfield. He ends up in a silo, which is specifically a very modern, real silo. They filmed on location. The silly putty boys, they're stretching and bending around like T-1000s getting under the door. He lures them both in there. He shoots them with a pistol. Uh, that's actually a, 
a fat boy launcher and it just blows this whole fucking thing up <laughs> well apparently it was filled with methane so it was definitely a uh, light the match situation uh fair and call this, all right and this is where we get to one of the episodes down points as far as i'm concerned which is farmer brown <laughs> well no farmer brown is fine farmer brown with his his space winchester uh i actually really liked that, that was a thing the difference between the practical effect and the composite effect is awful here because what they do is they do a big explosion. They do a practical explosion. They blow up the silo. And that looks great. It's an HD. It looks fantastic. But then they do a bunch of bullshit composite digital effects on top of it with debris. And it's so bad. And then and that's really part of where the episode has its flaws is there is digital effects all the fuck over this episode. And they get handy with them throughout the whole run of the series. Because unlike when we were watching Voyager, which was originally created in like 1990 fucking four, they've come a long way since then and being able to do cheap digital effects for TV that look good. And there's some shit that looks good. A lot of the space stuff, actually, I would contend looks fantastic, particularly like moving in and out of the clouds. They do some cool stuff later on in this in this episode. But they are not there yet with being able to composite digital effects onto a practical effect and make it look good and just never do it. Never fucking do it. I didn't even notice. All, all I was fixated on was Farmer Brown's over under shotgun. Over uh, under space shotgun. His plasma <laughs> rifle, as we'll find out. And he tells uh, the Klingon, hey, chill out. And uh, Debo's like, where's my money? And he's like... <laughs> So he shoots him and puts a hole in him. And then things take a turn for the really worst as we get. Uh, you know, I'd heard stories, Joe, mm -hmm. about this opening. Oh, yeah, I, it's, it's an experience. Did you let it really wash over you? Did you really go through the whole thing? You have to go through the whole thing the first time. You have to know. At one point, and I quote, Dennis McCarthy, the, the writer, cited this episode, which had an enormous impact on the style of music typically used for the series of Enterprise as one of his favorites from all the Star Trek outings he ever worked on. Quote, Rick Berman came in and I played him the first cue, which was thunderous, remembered McCarthy. And he just said, great, that's our style down. I'm going to go on a ledge here. I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to say that Rick Berman and Bran Branagh, who are behind this episode and this series, at this point are just so full of their own shit and surrounded by so many people who refuse to give them any real usable criticism, constructive criticism or advice and are just surrounded by yes men where no one can do no wrong. And someone is into really like really, really into like Rod Stewart. So they played him this knockoff Rod Stewart that was recorded yeah. by a guy who literally had to record this fucking song on September 11th, <laughs> 2001. This is, recorded a, this is the real terrorist attack. This is it. The episode score composed by Dennis McCarthy was recorded on the 10th of September and the 11th of September at Paramount Stadium. Despite the events on the second day and the offer to postpone the recording session, McCarthy and the orchestra decided to... to, to okay, so that was the score. The score is different than the theme song. The theme song may not have been uh, recorded on September well, 11th. Listen, for the fucking travesty that that thing is, I can only assume it was born in the midst of a born global in tragedy. Born in death. 
I, okay, so it's notoriously bad. It is notoriously bad. It is infamous amongst all Trek fans. It is, as you said, like some sort of weird off-brand Rod Stewart. I like to call it uh, Dollar Store Bon Jovi. Uh, it is this weird rock ballad. Like that's what Steve, Stevie like was just perplexed at what she was hearing. And she, I remember she looked over at me and said, who thought that a rock ballad was what was needed here? Like, what is, was this a thing? It wasn't a thing, by the way. It is so off brand for Star Trek, for starters. Yeah. Completely jarring. The the song is garbage. Paired with this goofy montage of uh, mankind's travel. With no real shots of the ship. Again, and this is coming from Voyager, which had the best intro until we got around to Star Trek Lower Decks. Right? Yeah, true the bad I don't know if it's a Microsoft PowerPoint or whatever they're taking you through there it looks like an animated menu from sort of sort of like high school science room laser disc yeah movie. Like, you're, like you got the encyclopedia Brit- uh, Britannica DVD yeah, it, it, I'm sorry am I turning on Encarta for the first time what is this yeah. this garbage so this goofy clip show with this god awful music had I wa- I hated it now, and had I watched that back in 2001, that, that would have killed the whole thing. I don't know how you got through it. I mean, you were there, Joe. What, what were people saying? You were on the internet. It was awful, and no one liked it. And I think you're right in your diagnosis that your, your key principal producer figures are locked into the classic Hollywood bubble. They are only talking to people who are interested in developing relationships with them and not telling them guys discount Rod Stewart is not the fucking vibe. Right. And you know, they're like, Oh, we want to do something new. We want to do something exciting. And there is a desire to reinvent, right? There's a desire to do something that feels younger and fresher with the franchise to like, okay, we don't want it to feel exactly like Voyager, you know, the ratings kind of dropped off there. Let's do something that will capture some attention. Yeah, nothing different says kind of young intro. and fresh like soft rock. Maybe we yeah. get some fucking cool jazz in there while when you're a, When you're a middle-aged boomer and your previous entry was instrumental, then you probably can convince yourself that it is. But it's bad. It's real bad. We get it, introduced during this to the real star of the show, the main character, which is the skip intro button. Yes, which I God. will be coming very good friends with moving forward. I've I've watched this intro one time. This is the last time I will watch that fucking intro. Uh, yeah, there's really only one reason to watch it later on. I'll let you know when you should watch it because oh, change. the mirror universe. Yeah, the mirror universe. One. You know Quick about background. that? Okay. Quick background. Okay. My dad loved this show. As I I'd never watched a fucking single episode of it. My dad watched all of it. I think it's he had a thing for DePaul, which I, okay. I can sympathize I, with. I get that. Yeah. My dad's a real nice guy. He doesn't really criticize anything. Even he's like, this intro's really... My dad's an old boomer. <laughs> my dad likes Rod Stewart. My dad, my first fucking he's concert... He's the target audience! <laughs> my first concert in life was a Rod Stewart concert because my dad is friends with the lead guitarist of Rod Stewart, and he gave us tickets, like front row, backstage, whatever tickets. My dad had to work. He made me take my mom to find i said i don't want this to be my first concert dad and he said tough <laughs> other than that 
and even my dad's like, this is terrible. They got this one episode where they go to like the bad place and they got a really good military intro. I don't know why they didn't just keep that. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. So they changed the intro when they do the mirror universe episodes and it's fucking rad. looking forward to that. I'll watch that. one. <laughs> Someone should do a fan cut where they just get rid of this thing. We come out of that atrocity and uh, we get our classic. Hey, here's my starship and I'm going to shuttlecraft and we're going to fly around and show off the goods. So something I'm sure you noticed right away here, which is since this is the 22nd century, apparently whatever brainworm gets into humanity that they start wearing the most ridiculous civilian clothes has not occurred. Civilian clothes in the 22nd century look like normal clothes. You get ball caps and shorts and jeans and things that people wear, which I like. I would love an NX1 ball cap. I would love that. That's cool. That's a neat thing. It's uh, our lead character. It's Captain Archer, Jonathan Archer, played by Scott Bakula of he of Quantum Leap fame. And he is riding in this inspection pod with I would call him the I guess the second main character. I, I, I Paul is often seen as a second main character. I don't think that's true. The actual second main character of the show is Charles Tucker, a.k.a. Trip, who is the. I guess called the second officer ultimately and the chief engineer. And he is also, as we'll ultimately discover space Florida man. Is that what he is? Trip is from Florida. He is going to talk a lot about how he's from Florida in different episodes. And he does stupid Florida man things in space (laughs) all the time. (laughs) I like him already. I like this guy. Uh, I like the first time we've really been treated to good old boy in Star Trek. We've gotten Scotsman's and we've gotten. Uh, yeah, now you got to get now you got a get her done style Southerner, you know, like it's it's not too harsh. It's just enough of that. Keep your shirt on, Lieutenant, you know, like just mm-hmm. enough to know you're from from below the Mason Dixon line, but not so much as it gets irritating. Big change from Voyager. Uh, again, Voyager came in very multiracial. Uh, progressive cast which aged incredibly well and by 2020 21 22 sensibilities is right on the money for something i can watch without it standing out right at the time maybe it made some waves this is a big jump back uh the two most important people in the show are two middle-aged white dudes right listen sometimes the classics are classics for a reason (laughs) (laughs) like you know, I I agree. There's like a certain level of of appreciation for the, the I don't want to call it novelty, but the different approach to making kind of thing, spreading out your your uh, the way that you cast things, such sure. that your main characters uh, aren't necessarily all men and all white men. But at the same time, I think that's a lot less important than having like good actors and interesting characters in those roles. I have been on the record of not liking Scott Bakula. I'm gonna see if that my not liking him well that's the hold that's what i want to talk about really here is i like scott bacula from what i know scott bacula which is quantum leap and you're asking me to make another quantum leap by looking at scott bacula and seeing anybody other than dr samuel beckett right now like what the fuck were they doing they wanted a name and he certainly is one they want somebody who knows the genre which he certainly is I, I just think that he gets saddled with an unbearable task the same way 
that Kate Mulgrew was, which is um, having to just have this character that is does the stupidest shit because of the writers. And unlike Kate Mulgrew, who I think had a under unappreciated level of of acting charm, uh, Scott Bakula does not have a second gear like the same way, you know, he all I've ever seen him portray is the well-meaning. Charming, speak softly and carry a big stick, um, thoughtful scientist. And what did, did they see? Whatever. What was that fucking Kevin Sorbo? Sci-fi show. Andromeda. Andromeda. Did, did, did Berman see Andromeda and just get real jealous and like, hey, we need another. We need our own B, C tier male lead. What's the guy from about- Quantum Leap doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm, you know, maybe there is some lore out there as to how Scott Bakula got approached to do this, but he did. He got approached. You know, the jury, it remains out. But I'm glad we're both on the same wavelength that Tucker's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm all about that, dude. Everything I just said about, oh, two, you know, white guys and that, like, replace Bakula with a fucking vacuum cleaner if it means keeping this guy around. I don't care. <laughs> Trip is the best. Uh, they are doing the inspection. second favorite character in the show to uh, skip intro. <laughs> They're doing the inspection and the, Hey, uh, the boss wants to see a call comes and Captain Archer has to go meet with a actually somewhat familiar face to us in the form of Admiral Forrest. And I say somewhat familiar face to us because it's played by Von Armstrong, who we actually did see in, in uh, Voyager, he played All a one-off over alien. The place. No, but he, he played like sixteen things in Voyager. Yes, man. so he's he's uh, he's done. I think he has the record for the most amount of aliens played. Because he's played Klingons, he's played Cardassians, he's played Borg. Uh, he played uh, the the do- the Romulan Doctor and I of the Needle. So good. Yeah, but we last saw him in Survival Instinct, I guess. No, no, I take that back. He was the Alpha Herogen. Korath and the Vidian captain. My God. This I dude... know. Listen, man, I, I kept pointing him out and you're like, really? It's him. I'm like, yeah, like I got this dude's number. He's not the only old face that we're seeing in this scene. Old Gary Graham. Yes. Gary Graham only showed up the once as the other, uh, uh, one of the, uh, elevated from the other. It was kind of that, that dropped episode, uh, sort of plot line where they were going to do the second caretaker in Voyager. That cold so- fire. Yes, cold fire. And so there were the other uplifted, you know, psychics that she was taking care of. And Gary Graham played the head of those. Super Saiyan Ocampa. That that was one of my favorite. Uh, no, that wasn't cold fire. That was a uh, persistence of vision. No, it was cold fire. Was it cold fire? Sure. Yeah, was. That was cold fire. You know what? I I got mixed up because uh, the other person we've got a lot of experience in this episode is going to be the director. And that is a Jimmy uh, Conway. Yeah. James Conway, who has a handful of next gen justice, which is that God awful uh, fucking uh, Wesley Crusher throws in the nerf ball in the bushes. And now he has to die. <laughs> yes. We talked about that one a lot. Yeah. Neutral zone, which was the season one uh, season I think, finale. I think he mostly did DS nine though, didn't he? Frame of mind. That's where Riker shatters into pieces. I'm not going to get into the DS nine. He's got seven on there, but uh james conway no friend of mine man first episode of voyager the 37s oh (laughs) that rotten fucking pile of shit 
rough. Uh, and there's a lot of, th- I, I feel like there's a lot of 37s in this. Persistence of Vision, that was the one with the dem IQ that like Kess throws acid on. Correct. One, a great one I loved. Death Wish, the trilogy of terror, defilement of the Q continuum. And then Innocence, which was uh, another big fucking Voyager turd, which was uh, Tuvok in charge where he's. Oh, God, with the like reverse aging kids. So this. God, James Conway, not not my favorite Voyager guy. And uh, again, I I think a lot of the stuff I didn't really care for in those episodes bleeds through here. But no, man. Yeah, we got uh, we got Gary Graham as uh, the main Vulcan ambassador. Yeah, get used to seeing these guys, too. Um, unlike Voyager, uh, Enterprise has a a pretty e- well-used extended cast. So uh, guys like Saval and Admiral Forrest, they make their appearances through the seasons on a semi-regular basis. And I'm going to go on a limb again, and I'm going to assume that the biggest criticism we had of Voyager is not going to be present in Enterprise, and that is that Voyager always wanted everything to be a ship in a bottle, return to homeostasis, pick up the series at any point and watch an episode and you can just jump in and they'll explain everything you need to know. And if you pick up anything else, uh, self-reference, it was an accident and sorry, we didn't mean to do it. Whereas Enterprise seems like they are telling a cohesive story with ongoing plot arcs and uh, an ongoing timeline of events that matter. It's like the one criticism that really got into Rick Berman's head was the ship of the bottle thing is not working out. And they really definitely went a different direction. Um, 100%. I, I would say that Enterprise is almost exhaustively devoted to its own continuity. There are literally things that happen in this episode that are referenced through all four years of the series. Not just like, oh, hey, remember that wacky first adventure? Just like you, when when Trip accidentally bumped the shuttle pod into the ship. That gets referenced like a year from now. Hey, spoiler alert. I mean, it's just a perfect <laughs> example, though, right? Like they good. just good. Good. It's what I'm here for. I, I'm very happy to hear and this. Me and too. I'm... And that's why I always liked the show is that I thought that that element was good. So there's Gary Graham. There's some other Vulcan cronies of Vulcans. Not necessarily good guys. I kind of like the fact that uh, humanity and Vulcans have uh, spent the past 90 years together and it has not been lovey-dovey. The Vulcans are there shepherding, but they're also holding back and they are chaperoning, which has a word that's going to be used later on in the episode, but they're they are the big brother and they're watching over humanity and deciding what humanity can and can't have access to at which points and they're in this medical facility that uh, Archer gets pulled to by Admiral Forrest. And we see uh Debo up on the operating table with another guy. I know it's going to be a big deal. And that's Dr. Flox. Correct. So we get the rundown. This guy is a Klingon. This is the first time humans have ever seen a Klingon. And he got shot by the farmer because uh, he was a courier on his way to deliver a message back to Kronos. And the Vulcans are like, nah, you guys are not adult yet enough to handle going to Kronos. We will handle this for you. And we get the first hint of what we'll call the edgy teenager nature of humanity, 
when it comes to some of the plot points in the series, which is they basically want to rebel against their parent. And in this case, their parent is really the Vulcans by doing whatever it is that they tell them not to do. It's, it happens a lot. <laughs> so here's some cool stuff going on. <clears throat> this Vulcan, I'm sorry, the Debo, the Klingon, he's fucked up, but he's not dead. And the game plan that the Vulcans have laid out here is that they're going to let this guy die. They're going to pull the plug on him and they're going to take the body back to Kronos and he can to to observe their concepts of honors, a warrior death uh, and the glory of dying in battle. And Archer goes, well, that seems inhumane. And this guy seems like he's salvageable. Why don't we just bring him back? And, and try and heal him up. And it's a chance for us to get out there, start seeing the galaxy, start making some connections. Um, I'll be curious to hear what your input in as far as the complete lack of all awareness that the Vulcans and humans seem to have about these fucking Klingon. I mean, at this, the, the, the Klingon Vulcans have to, know who the Klingons are. Like, yeah, but it really seems like clear. there's a like, well, we don't really know. And there's some eh, like the Klingon should basically be the pre-Borg. Right. If you meet them, they're going to fight. That's what they're about. They want to cut your face off and wear it like a mask, maybe turn you into a soup. Or is that the Herogen? I don't know. It's hard to tell. It's a big galaxy. You get these names mixed up. I think they give a good impression that the Vulcans probably know a lot more. They're just choosing not to tell the humans. Sure. Uh, but hey, here's our plan. We're going to we're going to bring this guy back. And, uh, you know, we were planning on doing some warp speed tests on the Enterprise and see if we can't break that. uh Warp 4.5 record. And hey, maybe we go take this down to Kronos, right? And the Vulcans are like, no, we got a policy that doesn't follow the policy. Admiral Forrest clearly brought Archer in to bark, (laughs) like close talk bark right in the Vulcans' faces and antagonize the shit out of them, which is like his superpower. So let me give him the benefit of the doubt. And again, we've got Berman and Braga writing this who aren't exactly my two favorite guys to write episodes but are we going to find out later on that this was basically a trap and that there was some conspiring by humanity to start getting off the rails and doing stuff and that Archer was brought in specifically to shake things up because I thought it was absurd that some fucking admiral off the cuff decided you know what I'm going to we're going to change our entire intergalactic policy I'm I'm going to make the decision on behalf of humanity to make first contact with an extremely aggressive race and tell the fucking Vulcan chaperones to eat shit. So a lot of the backstory of enterprise that will become more and more apparent, it started to become, you know, bits and pieces have already been revealed, which is that the enterprise, the hero ship of this series, the NX one is, is a revolutionary design on the part of humanity because it is a warp five engine. It is way, way faster than anything else that they presently have access to. And uh, they, like like I said in the intro, you get to Neptune and back in minutes. And it's there's hype about it because this is going to allow humanity for the very first time to actually explore deep space in a practical fashion because other warp drives before this were not capable of it. But is the it, Vulcans it, have not been good partners in developing this and have really tried to hold humanity back from, you know, exploring what's out there. So, and that's what I was going to ask, like, is the Enterprise kind of like the Normandy from Mass Effect, where it's like a joint project between the Turians and humanity? Like, did Vulcan R&D go into this, or is this pure Earth? It's 
really Earth getting it done despite Vulcans trying to stop them passive aggressively. And that's really kind of where this ends up shaking out. And it's not so much a conspiracy so much as Forrest wants to like, he's kind of done with the Vulcan shit too. And he wants humanity to finally start getting out there and doing shit on their own. Because again, they're edgy teenagers and they don't like their, they don't like What is dad. the government of Earth at this point? It's called just United Earth, right? So this is pre-Federation. There's no Federation, but there is just one government of Earth. So there's a president somewhere. President of Earth. Yes. And he is going to have a briefing tomorrow morning that some fucking admiral in Broken Bow, Idaho, decided that, hey, <laughs> we're doing this. <laughs> it's go time. Green light. So the green light is given. Uh, Archer, after uh, antagonizing all of the Vulcans as much as possible, including one of them, who we will get to know better here shortly, to Paul. Um, is like, I could be ready in three days. I just need to assemble my team. And that's when we go to meet the rest of the crew. We start with two charming planks of wood. This being Malcolm Reed and Travis Mayweather, the British armory officer and the uh, boomer, in this case, says a specific term in Enterprise. Yeah, that was Helmsman. throwing me off. Yeah, so in... I. So Travis Mayweather's backstory is probably the most most interesting one. Unfortunately, he is played by an actor that is bad. Okay, I don't know. Like Garrett Wang, bad. So Anthony Montgomery is probably a worse actor than Garrett Wang, but he's also not as whiny or as. Well, you only know Garrett Wang's whiny because of Delta Flyers, right? Like I don't. I guess I don't know if Anthony Montgomery is whitey, so I I choose to believe he's not. But uh, he's not a great actor. Um, He is a charming plank of wood. Uh, But his backstory of his character is really interesting, that the idea that is he grew up on cargo ships that aren't very fast. They only go like warp 1.5. And so he spent his whole life on ships and he is thus, as a consequence, one of the few humans that's been to a bunch of other planets. And that's also one of the more interesting underlying themes of the show, which is none of these people have explored space. This is all new to them. And a lot of things they run into is just them going, oh my God, what's that? (laughs) Like, this is so cool. Let's go see what this, what happens when I touch it. Like, there's no rules for anything. Think about that, though. Like, let that really sink in. Your your space program, your Starfleet is staffed by a bunch of people who live on Earth. Yeah. And it's just one guy to, to borrow off Mass Effect, you know, a spacer, right? Like, it seems... You've replaced space scientists with space tourists. It's it it makes sense that if you're going to go out there, you might as well hire the guy who's actually spent some time traveling in space to drive your ship. Makes perfect sense. And then I do like the idea of the kind of stuffy British, you know, naval officer as the militant, you know, weapons guy, right? Like. He fulfills a trope that needs to be filled on a ship filled with tourists. Mayweather isn't interesting because on one hand, I get some real 
uh, FNG rookie Wesley Crusher, um, Harry Kim wet behind the ear cadet feel right. Mm-hmm. But on the other end, as you just pointed out, like this is also the most experienced space faring person there it is. So like, I'll be curious to see how that interplay uh, ends up uh, shaking out. And then uh, Reed and Mayweather are bonding over uh, their mutual disgust at the idea of having their souls ripped out uh, because of course they are looking at the new technology of the transporter being used to beam up cargo and uh, remarking that it is in fact cleared for bio use, but the, you know, their souls are screaming at them to, to tell them to stay away uh, from this device that will kill them and then reassemble them a husk that is no longer insold. In the Wikipedia, they say that both Bran and uh, Berman agreed that, you know, after the initial conversation of this and when they finally break the phaser out, like, all right, that's done and over. Give me a full episode of the people here at the dawn of this technology having a deep spiritual debate over. (laughs) Is this thing fucking killing you and putting together an undead version of yourself while your corpse is dripping off Ram somewhere in the console and your soul is a br- like, I'm down for that. G- g- give me all of that. I'm very sad to hear that this will never be a thing again. And, and that's not exactly true. It's not exactly true. I'll leave it at that. Okay. We then turn to the recruitment. Oh, we, we see a quick shot of the engine room. Uh, Cause the Reed and Mayweather go down there. And that's when you get a little, some more Southernisms from trip where he's talking to Reed about the parts he needs to like keep the deflector ready so that the warp five like engine doesn't kill them. Yeah. I, because it starts with uh Reed like, well, I'm going to tell you exactly what that hayseed's going to say. And it's, you know, keep your shirt on this and that. And like trip actually says it. So I'm like, all right, that's cute. I liked it. I dig the new warp core. Yeah. It looks I, very archaic. I like humans crawling all over it. Like ants on a big piece of ice cream that fell on the floor. The, the ship feels more like a submarine than a flying Holiday Inn Express. And I think that that's a really cool. And it's obviously like set design sensibilities have, have matured since they had to design Voyager. So like all the consoles and all the computers, they look more like actual like computers, like with like keypads and shit. Well, they yeah. are. And, I, and again, in the... <laughs> In the memory alpha, each one of those displays on the bridge is hooked to a separate computer and none of them worked. So that delayed uh, the first day of filming, Oof. Uh, which I thought was funny. But that that commentary there is something you had made back during our Voyager years that you really I believe you said that's your favorite bridge. Yeah. The submarine feel all things, especially when you get into like Archer's quarters, how tight and confined. It's not the big sprawling penthouse that picard had certainly um it's all working for me so far let let's talk about the enterprise nx01 as a ship itself i'm not feeling it man it looks like the uss wedgie it looks like someone took this starship pulled its underwear up into its ass crack and it's like waddling around hoping someone will pick it out of there i kind of like it as a concept of they had never made anything like this before. So this was like their first attempt at designing a ship like this. And so it's not quite, it's a little wonky. 
So in that, you can respect, see how it'll turn into the the other seventeen oh one A. Yeah, yeah. Like eventually, the design aesthetic evolves as technology evolves and their experience evolves. This is literally the very first one they ever built, so it's a little. Meh. But it's your hero <laughs> ship, man. It's it's the biggest character. Yeah. I get it. I I I might be justifying that too much. I'll admit that. Like I might be finding a a reason for it, but I do think that the the concept that it's not perfect looking kind of makes goes with sense. everything else. Makes, makes perfect sense. sense. But again, I like that warp core. I like the idea that it, it looks like something you need wrenches and hammers to fix. Yes, and also, the uniforms kind of match that, too. Uniforms are very utilitarian. They're these jumpsuits that look like they can get grease on them, you know? And they're, like, actual, like, coveralls, you know? They're more practical. I think that's the biggest difference that sets this show apart mentally from everything else, is that you have these very grounded coveralls with a very muted division piping on it i mean it's still mm-hmm. the red green blue uh and and if i'm understanding correctly we're back to command is gold um medical is still blue and then people who die are going to be red although correct. Well, we're back to the classic formulation which if i'm looking at our logo the right way i think that means i'm going to die at some point <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying i'm the one who paid for that logo so you know yeah, yeah some, fair enough so there was some design influence. I'm there. certainly not a scientist. <laughs> my math is te- my space math is terrible. Yeah, it makes sense. And they don't look bad. But I think had they gone with something a little more TOS ish, uh, maybe might have built some better goodwill and just had something to cling on to to make this feel more Trek. I see your point where it's like maybe a little too practical, it's too divorced. That's that's my feeling after this entire episode. This is a very divorced experience from everything that I've come to expect from Trek. The next crew member they pick up is Hoshi Sato, which is the classic Asian casting of casting a Korean person to play a Japanese character. Very attractive. That's the rule on this, too. Uh, white dudes and attractive girls. I mean that all of the girls in Trek have have been attractive, so I, I don't I don't want to uh, somehow say that this is not a, a continuation of the existing trope. But yes, Linda Park uh, plays Oshi. She I really like the way that this character is portrayed. I really like it. Feel like it kind of hits a really interesting spot. Uh, she is recruited as the uh, communications officer. She's some kind of teacher. And clearly they, they set up she's a talented linguist in her own right. And uh, she has been specifically recruited for this mission because, well, we're about to go into space. We're about to hear a bunch of languages humans have literally never heard before. And you are such a savant. You could hear uh, Klingon and actually start speaking it like 20 minutes later. I can't help but feel that J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot. Is influenced just, by this. Yeah. Just pillaged that up and down for Uhura. It was great on Uhura, and I loved Uhura in the in the reboot movies, but like that that is exactly what this character is. Yeah, and it's a perfect kind of character to have in this premise. Don't have a universal translator. So you literally hire someone who is personally such a genius in languages that they represent in themselves a translator. But she's really good at that thing, but she's obviously like not cool with being in space. 
which is a nice counterbalance to a bunch of dudes who want to go into space and someone else who is supposed to go into space is like, but actually midterms are coming up and I need to grade these tests. I'm going to delay your fucking intergalactic mission and advancing humanity to the next level because I need to grade finals. There's a lot of backstory that kind of gets fleshed out of like how it is that she wound up in this position to begin with of like why she would be on this ship if she doesn't even want to be in space. If she's afraid of the warp core vibrations and <laughs> hey, you're standing too close, it's going to fucking sterilize you. It's it's neat. And it's because it's so different than it's again, it's divorced, right? Like you're used to Starfleet officers being gung ho about being in space and really everyone you've met so far is, but you know, this is new thing and we need the best person for it. And that best person on this planet, she doesn't actually want to go that bad, but you know, apparently she and Archer are friends and uh, more importantly, she is such a nerd about languages. She can't resist the idea of like learning alien languages and talking to them. So, uh, she winds up on the ship, and then the last piece of the bu- of the puzzle is, of course, the the chaperone. Um, we we are reintroduced more firmly to uh, sub commander to Paul of the Vulcan High Command, and she has arrived to take her post as the science officer and first officer of the vessel in exchange for essentially directions to Kronos. And let's talk about the 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 Vulcan reasoning here. Hey, here is these humans. They are monkey people who are slaves to their own desires and crass base impulses. And they've made some good progress over the past hundred years. But we clearly still look down at them from our Vulcan conclave uh, next to whatever military base. And, you know, they're just they're all just slaves to instincts and desires. Who are we going to send to keep them in line? Are we going to send this this old fucking dude who looks like he's uh you know about to turn into dust no get her over there (laughs) get her in a velvet jumpsuit make sure whatever underwear she's wearing does not go past her belly button make sure her nipples are visible at all times oh my god And couldn't get over it. She could not get over like my wife couldn't either. My wife, the 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 goddamn sonic shower of of HR nightmare fuel, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're expected to slather each other down. Casey, my wife's like, why why her nipples pointing that way? And then they move over. She's like, stop. Wait, hold up. Pause it. They fix okay, good. They fixed her boobs in this one. Like she was very aware of the nipple trajectory at all times. Just fucking ridiculous. So like, okay, take take the young hot one, wrap her in a velvet band-aid, and go lock her up in this the USS Horn Dog submarine that's gonna go off on deep space. Also, I you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe everybody else in the enclave was like real close to hitting uh Pond Fire. Far. She had to get out of there. And they're like, all right, well, she just went through Ponfar. She's good for at least five years. We don't need like uh, Old Spice over here <laughs> forcing himself on anybody, creating a Vork situation. We don't need no blood fever. Paul is played by Jolene Blaylock, as mentioned. She is not been hired for her acting skill, something we we have experience with. As I mentioned, to the actress's credit, she spent a great deal of time getting ready to understand how to play a Vulcan and restrained, uh, you know, not show emotion 
And as our kind of experience with Tuvok showed us is the, the, the completed Vulcan character, you know, like the, the not Spock, like Spock's half human, half Vulcan. So his like emotional like war within himself was a vital part of his character experience. Yeah. This, this is, this is the Vulcan who is a Vulcan. Right. And uh, so the, the nuance uh, range is very, very tight. Right. There's just only a little bit of space where you can travel in with this character in terms of un- showing emotion and reacting to things. Clearly, as the pilot, you're not expecting him to, to have it down 100 percent. There's definitely a few weird performance beats in this episode that was interesting to observe, knowing like where characters kind of settle just even in this first season, particularly with flocks. Flox gets recruited. He's like, hey, hey, what's going on? I'm a doctor. I've actually seen a Klingon before. Super and, Shades and Neelix, and uh, I'm there for it. Yeah, and he retains a lot of that, but he's a little he's a little more flip. He, they tone down his flipness, and they turn up his like being a professional a bit more later on. They find a better balance with him. I already like but, the guy. But for T'Pol, like, yeah, she does a good job of being a Vulcan, but they're really not asking her to do too much just to be a Vulcan, you know? It's interesting that the Vulcans, instead of showing emotion, like the, the play that the actor's have in these characters same with tim russ you know minus the fact like minus the situations where you get real talk to vok you either have a very flat machine or kind of a bitch you know and you never Mm -hmm. really see any of that these vulcans were like okay the little bit of play i get is going to lead towards compassion or kindness it's just a machine or being a dick which makes sense at this juncture because the vulcans are being dicks they're not they're not happy about this they're not happy to be on earth these people who've been assigned and you know they're doing their job they're doing their duty but it's certainly not a pleasurable experience for us so you're not going to see uh vlad goldblum or any of the skeevian click of the uh no this is not it's not filled with pleasure other character we, we can't speed past here is the dog oh yeah porthos the space good boy so very I good just... boy. I, I haven't fallen in love with a dog this fast ever that's a dog <laughs> i i would like to go pet porthos uh, is a beagle that's so well behaved he's not barking all the time i hate beagles with a passion but i like porthos <laughs> yep the uh, the idea that the captain just brings his dog on this incredibly dangerous space adventure where this dog is going to encounter strange new worlds well, and new civilizations listen, they don't know how long it's going right. to be out there maybe he was planning on dropping that dog back off before it actually went on to active duty uh, so back to DePaul, right uh, another spandex teddy suit right out of the gate and mm-hmm. i talked about it already voyager had to hit a point where the ratings got so bad that in case of emergency breakout sex they're going right for the jugular and it doesn't stop there like how is this character at all different from Son of Night? I mean, granted, one's Vulcan, the other's a Borg, ex-Borg. But, like, if I was Jerry Ryan, I'd be like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Like, they, they just recast me with a girl wearing bronze. Like, I mean, I can identify a main difference between the two. You can maybe deeper into the series, but like. No, no, right now. Right now. Jerry Ryan's butt was way better. <laughs> Jesus. I, yes you're right right like 
Uh, they are. They are. Playing. I am the robot lady who follows the rules and is stronger than you and smarter than you. And I make better decisions that it's more conservative. But in the end of the day, I'm going to have to learn my lesson to um, embrace humanity or at least give it a chance. Yep. It is such a fuck. I've never seen a fucking blatant carbon copy. Oh, and also I look great. Would you like yeah. to see? Good. Let's put the camera right at boob level so everybody sees. Look at me. Yep. I'm perfect. I mean, it, it, you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's that's why I cracked the joke I did, right? Because that is the only difference between the two here at first blush. Like, yeah, as time goes on, there's definitely a big difference between the two. But uh, a, Rick Berman had a very specific play. He wanted to continue running, and he did. Shame on him. Uh, it, yeah. it's, it's, and it doesn't serve anyone, right? Like, it doesn't, I mean, the idea of the Vulcan, like, plant on the ship the Vulcan chaperone, that's all fine. The idea of a Vulcan character, that's all fine. But the just locking in the the turbo sex appeal dominant, you know, uh, Terminatrix for the second time in a row is just tiring. I agree. And I'll tell you right now, the difference between those two characters is even with his blatant beating you over the head with the sexuality that Seven of Nine was in Voyager. Never, ever did they have Jerry Ryan go anywhere near anything as fucking gratuitous as that shower scene. God. Right off the fucking jump. Just shameless. And, and again, it, just, it makes the whole thing just feel late but late late night, low budget, sci-fi B schlock. And and that this is supposed to be... I really think that, that scene probably turned a lot of people off of the and show. And rightfully so. Between yeah. that fucking scene and that piece of shit intro... Who is watching this thing for quality control that committed the ultimate sin and kept their mouth shut when Rick Berman said, what do you think? It's such like it's such pandering to 14 year olds and neckbeards to have put that in. I, I mean, I was watching this like with Stevie, like she's this is fucking sh- hot. I don't regret seeing yeah, it, but right, I'm not but- I'm not what I could. I don't know, maybe back in fucking 2001, you know, streaming porn video wasn't a, a thing for you. <laughs> you had to like straight up download fucking rip DVDs. Like it sucked trying to get fucking porn in 2001 still. But the pictures were there. The hun.com. I used to go there all the time. You could get porn easily. I'm not going to Star Trek to see this stuff. So uh, Enterprise is finally about to launch and we get a quick cameo actually from a familiar face because we get a video that was. Uh, a plate of the dedication ceremony of where the warp five engine was originally created. And who do we see? But uh, Zephyrin Cochran uh, as played by his movie actor, James Cromwell providing a brief speech that apparently provides the in universe origin of the phrase uh, of the, of the use of the phrase to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life and new civilizations. It's literally something boldly go where no one has gone before. As something that apparently Zephyrin Cochran himself said, which I thought was a neat touch. You know, like yeah. he's the one who said that. And the fact that he got like phoned up James Cromwell and was like, hey, man, uh, if you're not shooting another Babe sequel, can you come down? And this? <laughs> I, again, his best body of work, hands down for me, is Ellie Confidential. But I didn't know that uh, he was actually an original series. Uh, Zephyrin Cochran as a character was. No, but yeah. James Conroll as, a, as an actor. So that's three different Trek properties he's been able to touch, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, boy, did Cochran do a lot of growing up. I don't know how old he was supposed to be in First Contact. And again, man, like having First Contact out there as a body of work and that fucking 
high bar of quality and then this looking like a fucking amateur shit show especially for the money they put into it like how is do these both carry the name star trek uh but anyways cochran did a lot of growing up his ooby dooby days are far 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 behind him he's looking very distinguished and refined not living in the post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland anymore he's got a bunch of well-to-do cronies behind him as he wishes the future generations good luck as they make good on his initial promise and this is interesting for this guy too like he's not it's like uh constantine right uh constantine doesn't believe in god he knows god is real and there's a difference it's a difference between belief and actually knowing it's correct this isn't hope guiding Cochran to a brighter, better future. He knows it's going to happen. He's, He's just keeping them. He yes. hit on one in a bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... So, uh, you know, everything is happening as foretold by Reginald Barkley. I got into a fight on Twitter on someone about Jesus first contact. Christ. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> it's not it's... your willingness to indulge people on strangers on the Internet with your time. <sighs> Mm. It's a bad habit I can't kick myself of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna speed through a few things here because we are hour and twenty minutes into this discussion. Well, listen, so, man, we've been out of the saddle for a month. We I know, I know, and, I, and listen, we're gonna wind up doing this two hours, but I want to keep it at two hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get some content in regards to uh, Archer kind of talking with flocks. We found out, we find out flocks's uh, uh, apparently interspecies medical exchange persons that's why cool concept yeah that's how he knows the anatomy of other species and uh he is uh a collector of a a menage a menagerie of animals and little space creatures that have healing properties which we'll see he's not a kook you know he's it's effective and very holistic and very effective i would much rather do this than have standard post-mortem revival techniques you Putting know, a starfish like, on a bullet hole to suck out the poison and stitch it up. Certainly more interesting to watch than someone flashing a light. <laughs> uh, and that's part of that's got to be part of the budget that, that ran this thing up $11 million. A lot of Star Trek technology is very budget friendly. It's true. Uh, and doing things the old ways cost money. So I, I really like that that alternative take on space medicine. I will again credit Branagh and and Berman. Just throwaway lines. Oh, I'm part of the interspecies. Whatever. That's that's why I have this wealth of knowledge. That's why I've got all this kooky shit at my disposal. Great, cool. Go with it. Yeah. Again, we're not going to get to know much about Flocks in this particular episode, but he is a gregarious and and friendly and charming man, and he certainly gives off that vibe from the start. Also, he is from the Soundgarden Black Hole Sun video with that smile. That's true. We're going to do a lot to know about Denoblians, which is his species. We get the scene on the bridge where uh, Hoshi is is not a big fan of space and travel in it. Gets into a tiff with uh, Paul, who's just a real bitch to her. And so she starts cursing at her in Vulcan. <laughs> it's a nice touch. Liked it. <laughs> like... They 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 did not have a good start to their relationship. And uh, I, I fucking space elf. I can speak your high elven. Uh, the FNG Mayweather. I like that little uh, sweet spot on the ship where gravity flips and he's stuck to the ceiling. I thought that was neat. 
Yeah, yeah, that he like knows these little tricks about how spacecraft work and gravity plating because he spent his whole life on them. I like him uh, showing that he's cut from the same cloth as Harry Kim as he makes specific mention of, of the hey, womb. It's... Yes, the junior officer and their fixations with the womb. So they can pair Mayweather with uh, with an older vet as like a, another buddy duo like Paris and Kim were. No. It was a good dynamic. I liked it. I liked it too, but Mayweather just kind of gets a little stranded in terms of his characterization. Like he never winds up with like anyone to play against consistently. You you wind up with Hoshi and Flocks getting along really well. You get a lot of, you know, the captain and really everybody one way or another, but obviously a lot with T'Pol. Um, it's more like it's it basically they set up the the trifecta dynamic from the TOS as being uh, Archer, Trip, and T'Pol as like those three kind of interact a lot. Kirk, Bones, and Spock. Right. And then uh, I guess Reed is the kind of in the same way kind of gets stranded outside of the the, di- the traditional dynamics. Which is why I think it makes sense to pair him up with this Mayweather. I mean, the the... They do a lot together. Don't get me wrong, but uh, sometimes you'll see a lot of uh, Reed and Trip together and that sort of thing. We kind of start pushing things into a little dinner that Archer has with uh, T'Pol and he brings Trip up to it. We find out that Vulcans are vegetarians, but uh, the humans are not. They like they they got a pretty good. <laughs> I love a good that awful that... big T-bone steaks ready to go. So they get these delicious looking steaks and to Paul talk shit about how they still eat meat and fucking trip. It's just takes a big old piece out of his and goes, yeah, like, yep, fucking like it. <laughs> like, it's no delicious. Chicotes. No chicotes here. Like space Florida man striking hot and striking early. Like, that's right. I like me a T-bone. <laughs> Clearly taking the piss on uh, uh, out of, of to Paul's self-righteousness in this whole scene. Thank trying to bridge the gap between first contact movie and now um that in two generations that all the war disease and hunger is gone the wasteland that q showed us in uh first uh encounter at farpoint is a distant thought that they've earned this norman rockwell little utopia that they're living in and that they still got room to grow but boy didn't we clean up fast I'd like to think maybe the Vulcans actually did round up all the raiders and bad guys. And <laughs> right. Just, like, you know, they were stuck with pipe weapons. Not neck pinch him a little too hard. <laughs> and oh, then, no. uh, there's, there's a mass grave somewhere with a bunch of all the bad people that were left on Earth. So I thought that was cool. The last kind of thing that happens before we get to the next uh, act break is the Klingon wakes up. Hoshi and... The captain go down to talk to him. Hoshi has already figured out how to communicate in Klingon, at least in limited capacity, and is fumbling through it. And it's kind of like interesting of like how, you know, like the captain's being really impatient. And she's like, this is hard. <laughs> like, I'm still learning how to speak this fucking language. I'm smart. I'm not that smart. Come on. I know I'm Asian, but like, I'm not that genius. I'm like, probably the smartest human that we have ever encountered in any Star Trek property yet. Minus yeah. seven and nine who had a computer put in her head like chill out. I'm literally doing space magic right now by <laughs> learning how this guy talks. Uh, he's saying something about his money and coming back and that's his bicycle now. I don't know. 
This guy's crazy. <laughs> and we find out that the silly putty boys have figured out where it is that this Klingon is. We did get a scene where apparently the boss of the silly putty boys was like, I lost the guy. And they're like, you have to stop them. And it's like shadowy and it's weird and you don't get a lot of detail. And the silly putty boys do, in fact, show back up, disable all the power on Enterprise and ultimately make off with the Klingon guy. Remember season, was it six or five opener of Voyager, which was night night. And that was five. Very, very night here. Right. You got some uh, some some Tootsie Roll people lurking about the ship. They can go chameleon. I actually thought them crawling on the walls and ceiling like Spider-Man looked great and was yeah. creepy. It made him seem very weird. Um, but what did not seem very weird was when all the lights went off and they got out flashlights. They're just that, good old not, flashlights. flashlights, not wrist mounted. Not... <laughs> I even told Stevie, like, Peter's going to mention this. Yes. <laughs> Those are just normal flashlights. Look at this common sense flashlight. That you can hold and point anywhere and hit people with. Perfect for the military. Um, <laughs> one of them crawls up on the ceiling like uh, Spider-Man drops off, grabs Debo. Uh, the red shirt that was in the room, I thought, certainly to die in, in the first human murder in space, somehow pulls through. I think that's the stunt coordinator, actually, according to Memory Alpha. Also, I want to take this opportunity to say... I. I'm going through a little bit of a smoldering catcher, Lieutenant Ayala withdrawal. Yeah, I'm missing him too. I hope there's going to be a similar stoic, silent badass somewhere in the background for me to keep an eye out for like, where's Waldo? But maybe that's a reuse they're not willing to do. I want to go back to T-Paul talking about that there's no smoldering catcher in this. T-Paul, again, being another just a blatant seven of nine. Like what really pisses me off about that is that they would go back to that well and drink so deeply Yet there's been so many other good stuff that they've intentionally passed on because, well, that was already in DS9. We couldn't have fucking Seska stick around because you already had Garrick, right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't have Irish Mike, the bartender from those goddamn Fairhaven episodes stick around because there was uh, Vince Vic Fontaine. Fon yeah, Vic Fontaine. Yeah. Give me my smoldering catcher. I don't know. Does, Seska doesn't pop up in this yeah, chance, does she? You're not asking for what? No, I mean, yes, obviously. She's a antagonist for season three. God of hope. <laughs> I know. It's like just a moment of hope that I just wanted to give you. The fact that we got her and shattered in season seven was your treat. It was. It, and, and what a delicious one it was. So now we're going to start moving the plot to a point where we have to say, all right, well, the mission is fucked up and the guy we're here to deliver has been abducted. And to Paul's like mission fail let's go back to the title screen and archer's kind of like no let's uh let's go off the rails we're gonna go looking for him and also we're not gonna tell starfleet that i fucked up <laughs> and you're not and you're either not, you're not gonna tell him either so uh, we're gonna go off the rails with our brand new very expensive starship full of experimental technology and see where we end up the red shirt did manage to waste one of the silly putty people it's like their first hint that something very fucky is happening because Flox like has him opened up and is doing an actual autopsy again. It was cool to actually see someone do an autopsy rather than like I scanned him and it's on my computer. No, they got this guy fucking opened up and he's got like shit that he's got to dig. I'm like, oh, do you see this lung? Holy shit. This is all fucked. Um, and uh, it's out, only like, genetically modified. 
let's talk about these guys. So the silly putty people are Suleiman. Is that what they're called? Yes. Is this the first time we've heard of these guys in Star yes. Trek? Mm-hmm. So this is a brand new race. Correct. They look cool, right? They're they're like uh, I don't know, like uh, there was a big Vata green silly string and someone shoved their face in and came back up and they're, they're green. They glow. They're kind of uh, bendy and stretchy. And if I'm understanding the plot correctly, there is a faction of this race that has been bribed to become henchmen under the promise of heavy genetic augmentation. And jumping back to the scene we breezed through earlier, which is where the lead Suleiman bad guy is reporting to the big bad. Uh, I'm seeing him moving out of phase. There's this bad joke about never mind when we talk next. And I was like, is this this temporal war that Joe was talking about back in Voyager? They don't waste any time bringing up this temporal cold war, do they? No, it's, it's the main through line of the first three seasons is this temporal cold war that's occurring in the background and it in the events of it of occasionally in it basically intersecting and guiding uh, enterprises kind of path but uh the Sulman, as far as star trek baddies go very interesting right out of the gate they look cool they behave cool and i think them being used as patsies in a shadow war is a uh, is a fun thing to think about. And the main guy that's playing the main one is a good actor. Who is that? I what's his fucking name? I can't find him on. Oh uh, no, it's Silk. Is the guy's name John Fleck? Is the name of the actor. John Fleck. John Fleck was Talback on The Mind's Eye in TNG. He was uh, Koval, okay, in DS9. That's a DS9 thing. He played the junk dealer in Alice. That's what, I re- okay, no, yeah. that, that's what I recognize him from. No, 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 no. That's is that the shed? No, no, yeah, okay. Because the shadowy guy, the shadowy guy, he's talking to is uh, the doubting Thomas that tries giving Troy bad information in disaster. Or was it? Uh, what's the one where it's Roe Laren versus the bridge? Lieutenant Baxter, not Baxter. Oh yeah, the one where Troy's accidentally in charge by dint of her her ability, not her ability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so, <clears throat> always fun uh, spotting the old Trek names in these things. Archer is is fulfilling Starfleet's general order uh, before Starfleet even really exists, which is uh, is not disobeying orders as long as it works out. So let's go make it work out. They figure out the last place that the Klingon Klang had visited was Rigel X, Rigel 10, a uh, planet that's been referenced before on TOS, Definitely. but you've, you've never been there. It's been used in dialogue, but it's a nice callback, but we've never seen it. And uh, we get some hesitance, of course, on the part of T'Pol to like assist with this clear rule breaking to the point where uh, Archer threatens to throw her in space jail immediately. Like if you if you if you're not going to be a helper, you're going to you're going to sit in the fucking timeout box. So uh, get with the program or don't. It's interesting to think of the scope of the stage we're working with here, especially after Voyager and like huge swaths of of a quadrant. Like when warp 4.5 is the fastest you can go, like this is two streets over and around the block. Yeah, this is this would be an afternoon stroll for the Enterprise D, but this is a big fucking deal 
for the NXO one because as they get there and they get briefed by DePaul, they're like, yeah, so you're going to see a whole bunch of aliens. It's going to be real weird. And literally none of these people have ever seen a fucking human before. So, you know, be careful. Little will any of them know that you will come to become the dominant empire in this region of space. I mean, all of these systems have to become Federation, right? Well, it's explicitly Rigel X is mentioned in TOS as being a Federation world at that time. So, yeah, a lot of these untamed places kind of get civilized, you know? I mean, they're right on top of Earth. They have to be. I've seen the maps of, of Federation space for whatever those are worth <laughs> with the kooky geography of Yeah, uh, this is Star right Trek. next door. Yeah. Yeah. So they get there and we get a snowy tower hellish mining planet it's like omega it's like omega right like it's kind of from mass effect it's just this is kind of like this gritty kind of space stationy thing slummy uh they get down there and there's a cool i don't know lineup as they go down a bench of a bunch of people sitting there just all sorts of different aliens and all sorts of crazy different makeup it all looks good this is exactly what Voyager should have been nonstop, mm-hmm. which is crazy looking, high quality makeup jobs. Not a shithead in sight, right? There is none of these people that are sitting there that look like they have pieces of salami stuck in their hair, like 98% of the aliens in Star Trek Voyager's first four seasons. And you get a kind of a disturbing little scene where Trip and T'Pol are together and Trip sees what very clearly rape <laughs> could very well just be a rape in progress that he clearly wants to intervene and stop. Paul's like, that is not our fucking mission. And then misinterprets another situation later, which I thought is always was neat, which is, yeah, you, you thought that was abuse, but that's actually a mother trying to help a son wean himself into being able to breathe other atmospheres. And uh, you need to learn about other cultures. So, you know, like what is bad and what isn't Joe, did you know that Star Trek enterprise likes sexy scenes? Yeah, because they they go to the bar. They go to Afterlife. <laughs> uh, so, so we've already mentioned this scene briefly and something overall. But like, there's a charm to the idea that like Mayweather and Reed are just like this is just some wild shit, and they just get taken in by it because they have none. No one has any fucking experience seeing anything like this, and they're like just transfixed by it right it's just like what the because they're just like normal dudes in space now and they're two booby ladies eating butterflies out of the air yeah you'd watch that for five minutes like don't act like you wouldn't i absolutely would and and to be fair if you were if this was the only sexy part of this episode i would have way less complaints oh sure because you can say this is the uh the fucking rough and tumble wild west part of space versus the very civilized earth that we've come from and look at how crazy and different it is in reality. Again, these are the Coors Light sisters. I don't know if you remember them from the commercials back in the early two thousands, but it's, it's two sisters covered in latex makeup. One's blue, one's purple. Their boobs are very clearly just latex. Yeah. Painted boobs. And they're eating butterflies and it's, it's a shameless sex scene, but you can say what, you know, this is different. This is, serving a stark contrast to something else, not the enlightened pre-Federation. 
and yeah, it's it's a cool bar scene. So and a couple, and a couple horny dudes walk by, walk by, and they're like, "That this is this is this is different. This is very different." Is this where they have this talk I, I about? Am both, I am both confused and horny. Like I I kind of liked it. Is the butterfly eating erotic? Are they holograms? Are those real? Like valid questions. Questions. <laughs> and hey, good local thought, tour guide. We we want you to take us where the Klingons are, and he's like, "Yeah, but I'm also a pimp. You want me to arrange a meeting for you guys?" And they're like, "Uh, is this where um the one guy asks Mayweather about the aliens with either three boobs or vaginas?" I wasn't. No, no, that was that. Uh, that was in the uh, the scene when they did the gravity thing. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, Mayweather they had... he knows about Alien Strange. <laughs> it's like, hey, humans to go to. Strange new worlds meet new civilizations and fuck the shit out of which they actually mention at some point. I don't remember where it's at. Oh, I think it's during the briefing before they yeah. go down. You know, avoid intimate contact. You need the captain and the EMH. I'm oh, sorry, the doctor's permission before you can bang. That rule hasn't been written yet. Riker has not necessitated that rule to be written yet. So they're trying to find the Klingons that might be on the station. Everyone gets leads. Uh, and eventually, T'Pol phones up to Archer and Sato that, like, hey, uh, this is the enclave where the Klingons hang out. Uh, they go up there and then realize it's a trap. They aren't in the Klingon enclave at all. They're in a water treatment plant in Southern California. <laughs> it's, it's the best kind of space enclave. And we, we see Archer get out his incredibly fucking rad space Glock that they designed for them that they barely fucking ended up using, which apparently like Rick Berman regretted that, that they didn't use the more janky looking phase pistol uh, as, as the first prop. And instead of the, uh, the plasma pistol prop that they use here, because the plasma pistol prop just looks more like a gun, but uh, bust out the gun. They don't, he doesn't get to use it. Then they get into a Trek fight. They get captured we find out it, that uh, uh, T'Pol and Trip have already been captured and they haul Archer off to talk to a very sexy lady who immediately uh, uh, makes out with him. But, you know, don't worry. It's just uh, it's just how she makes sure that she can establish spirits touch her, yeah. by, by being a sexy lady. And then we find out this was the uh, soul bond that Clang had spoken to earlier that she had given him information about how her people, the Solobon have been staging attacks, the Klingon empire to create civil strife. And he was coming back with proof of that before he was captured. But you know, her group and her Solobon, they don't want to be part of this crowd. So they will help try and find him. And just as that conversation's ending, of course, is when uh, Silic and all his boys show up and there's another, there's another fight after that. I, you know, it's a tried and true storytelling device. Uh, you know, an outside force has corrupted my once proud race. Yep. Uh, it's created a, a civil war. We are the resistance to what our genetically engineered mercenary brethren are doing. She seemed pretty cool. Like it, it was a shameless, sexy player or whatever. But once she kind of drops the shit and starts laying the truth on, I'm like, this character seems interesting. I was sad to see them immediately gank her yeah and i I feel like i've seen her around and i want to say maybe she's from return of the living dead melinda clark melinda clark she give me that imdb 
Oh, she played Lady Heather on CSI. That's that makes sense. Dude, that is her. That's from fucking Return of the Living Dead 3, man. Oh, gosh. God, you're really good at just picking people out in these kind of circumstances. Uh, listen, all right. I, I've had many teenage thoughts about Return of the Living Dead 3. So there's there's a very good reason why that face has been burned in my memory. <laughs> she was also a priest out of Spawn. The live action one? Yeah. From the She's 90s? the one that guns, uh, what's his face, down and sets him on fire. Oh, no, she was the, the fucking leather, yeah. like, dominatrix lady? Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Okay. God, she was like the worst henchman in that film. I, I watched it a few years ago. Spawn does not hold up on any level. No. Except, and like, I, I bring seeing up Martin Sheen's regret. I mean, that holds up, but... I bring it up specifically because Spawn was talked about as a CGI low point when we were talking about Caretaker Part 1. God, the cape was cool, though. Cape was dope. Anyways, this character was really cool. I was sad to see her killer uh, get killed off, but thumbs the breaks in Star Trek, especially something this action heavy. And and I want to go back to this $11 million budget. How pleased as pie Rick Berman was that, you know, this thing achieved on all levels and blah, blah, blah. The pages and pages of VFX notes. None of this stuff holds up. I think this all looks like shit. These these phaser fights and stuff, minus dudes crawling on the walls and jumping off like all this stuff again just comes off as traditional Berman era, low energy. I mean, none of it's fighting. bad. It's just normal Trek stuff. Like, it's just what I'm, I'm used talking to. special effects specifically, though, like for whatever the, money they spend on all these firefights, ship fights, this, that, the locations, it's like the the only the only digital effects that I feel like really worked out was the shots of the NX-01 going in and out of the clouds. I thought that was really well rendered. Sure. And, but there's a lot of stuff well. that has an expensive everything CGI. else looks like a ps3 fucking cutscene at best or it's just stuff that fades in the background that you're not going to give credit for for all the money that went into this nothing about it comes off as extraordinary in terms of production scope or scale and if anything just just rides a subpar line so again, i wouldn't say subpar because one of the things they do are interesting like uh when they when the phaser fight spills back onto like the landing area there's like a almost like overhead shot and you can see both sides of the combatants behind cover shooting at each other. And there's a little bit more energy to it. Like they, they do more with the stuff. They do more interesting things with it. I thought that overhead shot in particular was neat that they did something like that, where you could really get a sense of what the, the fight was. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, was it like revolutionarily different? No. But as someone who watches like this much fucking track, I certainly do appreciate the, the the different things they did but again for like as excited as they were about like yeah you you guys did first contact which is a badass action movie you you've achieved these heights like to get this excited about what you got out of this tv show whatever so it's back and forth back and forth it's just run and gun uh everybody's got a pistol nobody's really dying to paul runs off you know which way is the ship left or right they make the choice. It pans out. She's banging on the door. Hey, let us in. She gets pinned down. She looks like she's going to be a goner, but good guy. Sam Beckett. I mean, Archer. Double John moves it. Grabs both guns. Standing. It's the most <laughs> fucking early 2000 cheesy fucking action sequence over where there's this big dude with two guns completely out in the open shooting wild and everybody else who's behind cover 
Nobody can fucking just shoot this guy in the head. Finally, as he's running back to the shuttle, he gets tagged in the leg. He falls down. They get him on the ship. I appreciate the fact that they're not using transporters and that they're stuck using these shuttles. It it does. It's quaint and I like it. And we go back to Scorpion part one where the captain who's doing all the uh, stuff that he shouldn't be doing and making the decisions that are very risky gets knocked out. And the first officer who did not like any of these ideas is now put in charge. This is where we finally get into the uh, infamous jail scene. We have already talked about the exploitive nature of it to just uh, get the boobies on screen. Um, it is. I, it can't be understated, man. Like, yeah, so it can't. Nobody else has to be in the decontamination chamber except for the two sexiest people we have with the most. This is like late night USA silk stockings. I don't like yeah. you and you don't like me. And we're stuck in a room and we're going to banter back and forth. Who knows what we're saying? Because uh, I got a fucking six pack and you look like a wet dream. And yeah, you're like, like Angelina so Jolie little booty shorts and this midriff titty top. I wouldn't want to say something overall. So Colin Trenier, who plays Trip, is the other guy in the scene. And of, as you noted, he is fucking absolutely jacked, right? Like not a wasted inch on him. This show is the show of beautiful people. Every single main cast member is fucking jacked. Like they all wind up with their shirt off at some point. All of them. And all of them look like fucking Trip. Like that, that, this ship just doesn't, doesn't have a, tr uh, doesn't just have a gym. It has like eight personal trainers and a nutritionist. <laughs> like it is insane. McDonald's did not get to set up a kiosk here. No, no, there is no, there were no like off season having to do the push ups or someone's fucking uniform didn't fit. Like that does not happen here. <laughs> they like, don't let, they don't let John DeLance anywhere near this set. Yeah, like the it's kind of unreal that uh, all of these people were in all this good of shape for this long, but they did it. They pulled it off. So it's this and it's not a quick scene, man. This is like five minutes slathering themselves up yeah. with butter. They do the whole it under her thigh, down oh, yeah. her stomach, on her back. Her nipples are rock hard. And it's just like, what? What am I fucking watching here? How am I supposed I could show my kids Voyager and be like, hey, you know. And that was interesting too. fan feedback. The girls like it's nice having a female empowered character. This and that like this is just softcore porn. It is. It is. And it's just dumb. It serves no purpose except just to to just have it on screen. You, obviously, this conversation is meant to just have us walk and talk in the hallway. You know, that's all it needed to be. Uh, but the point is, is that beyond the sexy gel time, that Tucker is trying to convince Paul not to take the ship back to Earth. Also, we're talking about her nipples heavily. Dick bulge all over the place. That was yeah. perhaps a more alarm, not alarming, shocking thing is like this dude's banana hammock. Like I haven't seen fucking <laughs> dick bulge like that since the Polynesian resort that Neelix there, made. There is nothing left to the imagination in the scene. You know, the contours of everyone. In I'm the sure scene. if I and since this is high def, I'm sure if you wanted to, you could pause the scene and figure out if Trip circumcised or not. It's just. <laughs> It's literally nuts, Joe. It's nuts. And it's not just Tripp's nuts. It's also going to be fucking John Archer's nuts. As we cut back over to him getting the starfish pulled off his leg. Um, if there was any dialogue from that scene, by the way, it's 
trip trying to convince her not to fucking scuttle the mission and go back to That's Earth. what I just said. I'm sorry, I was just thinking about Dick Bulge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so go back uh, to... It's left uncertain if T'Pol's going to listen to Trip's impassioned. You just have to let, you know, Archer fix this. That's what he does. You know, Archer's the best. He's the man. You just need to understand. His dad made the engine, and we owe something to his dad. We get that Paris entitlement. And uh, it's six hours later. Archer is conscious. His his phaser wound has been healed by a starfish, as noted. And apparently T'Pol has listened to uh, Tucker's impassioned reasoning and chosen to continue on with the risky mission. The failure of this episode is really allowing you to understand why T'Pol would do that, because up to this point, she showed no interest whatsoever in how these humans are doing the thing. Um, she just seems to cave to Tucker's like abs and uh, and bulge and impassioned plea, I suppose. I don't know that the connection, you know, getting back to bulges once uh, Archer finds out that the mission's still on and she's playing ball. He goes back to his quarters and starts recording personal logs um, also in his underwear, showing off his his junk. Yeah, it's important. Can I assert dominance? I did like I did like for the fact that uh, because this is early Starfleet, they don't do star dates. They actually give you the date April April sixteenth, twenty one fifty one. It's cool, but I thought that the reason for them staying on mission was because Trip played the hey, he went back for you and he didn't let you die in the fucking snow. But that actually gets like. Uh, that card gets played later on. So, yeah, it's it's a real head scratcher as to why T'Pol is indulging the cowboy fantasy here. And the episode continues. They make it to the planet that they were tracking the uh, Sulaban to. It's a gas giant. They do some science. They science the shit out of it using T'Pol's super science because she is a smart Vulcan lady. And they find out that there's a base. There's a Sulaban base. And that is probably where they're holding the Klingon. And so they have to come up with a way of like, what do we do? How do we get in here? All right. Fire up the polarized plating on the hull because they don't have shields. Shields aren't a thing for the for Federation yet. Instead, you're basically electrifying the, the hull plating so that it makes energy dissipate off of it uh, and get the weapons online. Scary we thought, huh? Yeah. Going into fight without shields and just taking everything directly to the hull. Yeesh. So they they dive in and then they immediately get shot a couple times and like, fuck this. <laughs> they go back into the basically into the atmosphere, upper atmosphere of the planet. Like, OK, that didn't work. <laughs> like, what do we what do we actually do? And they come up with the solution of using a grappler, a physical grappler with like little grappling hooks and tethers, because, again, the tractor beam has not been invented yet. Uh, to grab one of the little Sulaban ships, haul it into there, and then you get this great scene where Travis is trying to explain to Trip how to steer the thing they just stole because he's he's a genius about you know how ships drive. He knows how to do uh, how uh, controls work, and he's explaining it. And Trip is clearly Florida man, and he's like, uh, is, it, "Is that up? Like, is it?" Whatever, I'll figure it out. It's fine. It's just like when I, I, you know, I had to learn how to drive a stick. You know, like it's he's 
it's actually pretty funny of like no one's figured this out before i guess we're just gonna fucking do it guys and then the the last bit is that before they go on the mission because it's gonna be trip and and uh archer uh they get phase pistols which uh you know have stun and kill <laughs> best not to 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 uh confuse them. Confu- confuse the two and a handy little bomb that's gonna make it so that all the little ships dissipate from the space station so the bad guy hangout is a helix it is covered magnetically with individual ships that can come and go as they please as these mercenaries do their temporal bosses bidding and yeah as you said the plan is going to be to get on the ship rescue the klingon we do not want to risk going in and transporting him out. We've put too much effort into this to beam someone inside out and have a bunch of guts hit the deck. We got to go literally and said, heart. literally mentioned by by Archer, like, nah, he might not come back. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I like that. I'm like, OK, yeah, we don't need a fucking sack. And that's, of course, funny, because in the end, they're going to have to fucking beam him out and <laughs> they could oh, yeah. just cut all the bullshit. And eh, you never know. Um so they fly off in the stolen shuttlecraft that nobody realizes is shut- stolen. They dock. They go dungeon crawling around some very barren sets. Again, adding to the cheap sci-fi original or late yeah, night this USA. Is the cheapest, this is the cheap part of the episode. They, they ran out of money when they got to Act 7. Mm-hmm. Have these guys go knock around a fucking laser tag arena. We'll pretend it's an alien spaceship and call it a day. Uh, they find Debo. Debo lays down some fucking hurt on these guys. Yeah. They're getting into a firefight. They've, they've, he's figured out they're, he's getting, you know, they're getting them off the ship. So he stops resisting. Uh, but he doesn't stop resisting the Suleban and literally like sneaks up behind one and like rips his fucking head off. It's great. Does not even bother picking up the gun. Yeah, just fucking beats the man to death. <laughs> he kills him and he goes, that was a lot of fun. I'm not going to take this dude's gun. So in the off chance we find someone else to kill, I get to kill him with my bare hands again. They get him over. Uh Oh, there's only two seats in this pod. Also, we got to go back and plant the demagnetizing bomb to keep everybody off our ass. Archer says, "Uh, come on back for me later. It'll be it'll be fine. You get a pretty funny scene where this giant Klingon and Trip are trying to get back and Trip's like barely able to hold on to the steering wheel because the giant Klingon is so large. Uh, the Enterprise is trying to dodge basically depth charges to be found because they are not a match in a fight with whoever these guys are. And when they do rescue uh, Trip and the Klingon, uh, you know, we that's where we get the scene where Trip has to talk her into saving Archer because like Archer saved you. So that one, they actually she makes like, a pretty good point. He's like, no, he said, come back for me. She's like, maybe he said that because he knew it was a suicide mission and you're too stupid and would endanger the entire mission. Like, factually like, accurate. A hundred percent. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, ooh, mm, that is that is what the heroes say when they want to let you down softly. Uh, but he can, you know convinces her to go back so uh jump back to battlestar galactica razor where they end up on the planet and which we did uh, a review of i mean if you're somehow confused as to why we're bringing this up new viewer <laughs> we reviewed that as a special patreon item but then we made it free because we're that nice we are uh you go on a little stumble left and right and down the hallway and wouldn't you know it you go right into the big bads chamber so the 
the person who stayed behind probably to die can have that confrontation, that final talk with the the big bad guy. Um, and it's this temporal communication chamber. I fully expected Archer to have a little chat with a shadowy figure. But instead, he gets into it with, uh, what'd you call him? Silk? Silic. Yeah, Silic. Silic. Uh, and we get what is actually a pretty cool slow motion fight. Everybody's out of phase with time to the point where when the phaser finally gets shot, the beam of light travels slow enough that Archer's actually able to dodge out of the way. No real plot exposition or revealing of any additional plot because at this point he already knows about the temporal cold war you get to know that silic knows a lot about jonathan archer like that you know there's some timey-wimey bullshit happening the the temporal cold war stuff was not you know fiction there's something to all of this uh the fight you know ends when they pull what they call plan b to pull archer out of there and get the fuck out of dodge which is as mentioned beam him out and he, it's funny because the beaming effect is much better on the show than it's been in the past it's very well done and they beam him out and then when he beams back in he immediately is like ah, my soul <laughs> like, my soul oh, you no. bastards i promised i'd never do this and i'm the first person to die in the first episode does any starfleet actually die in this i don't mm. think so no no i mean other than just... archer Archer's right. soul's gone, but yeah, everyone else survived. Yeah. And then we uh we we get to Kronos after that, where the Klingons are speaking unsubtitled, which is a nice touch. It's you can only rely as the viewer on what Hoshi tells you is being said. That's how I watched the first season of Discovery, because the copy I had didn't have the subtitles included, so I just went based off of gestures and what I knew about Klingons. It's 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 a good way to watch Klingons. Also, I hate Klingons, so I like not knowing what they're actually saying. Regardless if you hate Klingons or not, I thought it was a clever thing of like, you just don't get to know exactly what's happening except to the extent Hoshi can understand, which is exactly how the characters would have been dealing with the situation. High Chancellor's got a cool knife he bought over at the uh, truck stop. Oh, he yeah. Says, Tennessee truck stop by yeah. the looks of it. Debo, give me that hand. He cuts his hand. There is a uh, part of the High Chancellor's rolling crew who's just ready to go with the test tube at all times <laughs> with a computer nearby uh-huh we just well, let's watch blood now scans. as we do your uh 23 and me genealogy result and they find out that the um basically debo is essentially johnny mnemonic and whatever the message that he's been currying has been encoded into his dna through Sulaban magic technology and uh, despite Picard's mention back in Next Gen that the first interactions between humanity and Klingon caused a brutal bloodshed, everybody seems pretty cool with Archer and company. I mean, there was bloodshed. It just wasn't brutal. Well, I don't. Maybe Picard's got a different outlook on what. I mean, brutal. there was a lot of shooting. Maybe that was brutal. I mean, maybe. Or maybe it's just. Trek writers don't care about Trek continuity sometime, and this is one of them. Uh, so the, everything's done. You know, they 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 go back up to the ship. They can so they tell can the fly. fuck off by the Klingon High ch- Chancellor. Yeah, High Chancellor's like, what, were you expecting a quest reward? Get the fuck I'm out not, of here. You think I'm going to give you some new bracers? Get the fuck out of here. You don't even get any gold. 
need XP and that's it. Get out. Yeah, beat it, smooth skins. Go back to Red Ridge. And, but, you know, seeing that there's all kinds of rad space shit to do, uh, and they managed to actually pull this caper off, uh, Admiral Forrest is like, why don't you guys just go keep, you know, putzing around? Let us know what's going on out there. And uh, they have a scene with Paul where Paul's like, all right, you humans aren't so bad. I'll stick around. And there you have it. You know, they are, they all begin their journey together, exploring space. Ridiculous. Ridiculous that the the best, sh- maybe even the only ship in the Starfleet uh, fleet, <laughs> Starfleet, it's a starship. Yeah. Uh, the, the Earth starship that got sent out on a what should have been an eight day round trip. They're just like, you know, it's just just stay out there. You guys, I hope you got enough. Fuck. You didn't eat all those steaks already, did you guys? <laughs> I mean, the, the, they we gave the, you two. The impl- they they implied that the ship had already been prepared for this mission. So they already had all their stuff. Wasn't like a Voyager thing where like we don't have half the shit we should because we were just down a quick uh, milk run. To the Badlands. Yeah. Like they were out. being prepped to do the thing. So still shitty that everybody there didn't really get a real chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. I hope that there's no cats that were left behind. No, Mr. There's... Sprinkles. No. What do you mean we're not going home? <laughs> uh, clever way. It was interesting that instead of Archer just flat out asking to keep to Paul around. He wanted to play the politics of uh to Paul asking to stay. Yeah. Her asking to stay. Um I'll be curious to see how long they remain antagonistic because a big part of that scene was Archer saying, you know, I I've spent a lot of my life resenting the Vulcans and I see as we start moving and doing new things that I'm going to have to let old things go including these prejudices and preconceptions and, and be willing to basically broaden my horizons and grow. Um, what kind of character changes we're going to see between him to Paul, obviously to Paul and trip are going to bang. Like they're laying down some very clear, whatever there. Um, I did this need to be an hour and a half TV show. I think it, I think that it needed to be longer than 45 minutes. You know, like 45 minutes didn't give you enough time. They did a good job in this in allowing you to understand what's going on with each character enough that you start to care what's what what's going on. You know what? Let me I'm I'm sorry. Because Caretaker was part one and part two and Encounter at Farpoint was a two parter, right? Correct. So I guess this is precedent. It's not mm-hmm. like it's them doing it as one episode instead of a two parter not really that crazy um again for as proud of this as they were in the memory alpha i felt like it really felt short a lot of this just felt throwaway the sex scenes really took a lot of wind out of the sails i again i haven't seen deep space nine which ends excellent and is great uh 24th century uh storytelling i can only wonder how hard Ronald Moore had to laugh at this. Do you think Ron Moore even bothered watching this fucking thing? God, I'd love to ask him. Um, I, I was hoping I would re- rehabilitate its image in your mind by praising, I think the things that they got right by the character beats were cool. The sets are great. The overall feel is very interesting and different. 
the idea that everyone's kind of like new to just whatever the fuck is about to happen to them because literally humans haven't been in space is cool. Um, you know, while some of the effects don't hold up and while there's a couple story beats that are just flat out missing, um, overall, it kind of gives you the premise of the show pretty, pretty good, pretty well. Like, humanity's given this whole space travel thing a, a, a try. Hopefully, these guys don't fuck it up. Like, that's, you know, this is the first, you know, wobbly steps into a larger world. And wobbly re- step is interesting way of putting it because I felt like this is not a good episode, and it certainly has a lot of problem stuff to it. But then when, again, when I go back and I compare it to any to caretaker or or encounter at Farpoint, like this is not the worst pilot to a Trek TV show that I agree. I was I'd say it's clearly better than both of those. And I think if I take the most glaring problems out of this, the this bad, sexy stuff, some of the other whatever, like the the, biggest concern that I have looking at this is. Is Scott Bakula going to be able to tackle this Archer thing? Is the script going to let him come off as likable? Or is this just going to look like Sam Beckett quantum leaped into another guy and is trying to fake it till he makes it? So I would say that the sad judgment I have had in the past has been that he's trying to do something different here. He just comes off as just, I hate you, dad, more than authoritative visionary space leader and that does a lot of damage to me in my estimation i hate you dad being i hate you vulcans correct he is obsessed with hating vulcans to a point where it just gets old and kind of illogical to the point of like not even like just normal human you know emotion but just like dude you've got a problem you know like (laughs) So, well, you know, space racism aside, aside from some technical issues, some missing story beats, and then, of course, notorious use of of sexy time space gel. I liked it. And I'm looking forward to fucking reviewing the rest of this with you, bud. You uh, you left off the. The disgusting use of space Rod Stewart. I guess I'm just opening and, and not only did we get it in the opening. But they they play out the instrumental version as our end credits. Like I couldn't even fucking stand watching the credits because of this thing. Please tell me they at least change the credits to something better. They don't. God damn it! I'm sorry. They don't. I guess I'm so used to it by I'll now. I'll give I've them listened. the first. I'll give them the first season and say, you know what? It was already done. Whatever. The second season of this show rolls around. You can change the intro. You could do something different. For them to hang on to that for a second season, like, and I'm guessing at some point Rick Berman gets somewhere near a fucking newspaper where the front page says this intro is the worst thing ever. And just to <laughs> hang on to it. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Vidra, please. You are so inclined. We would deeply appreciate a review of Vidra, please, particularly on Spotify. It's quick. It's easy. It's the just new hotness. It's the new thing to do. Go you ahead. Gotta listen and... to what thirteen minutes or something before you're able to leave a rating in there. I think, which clearly we've cleared. If you're hearing this at two, <laughs> two hours, hours and twelve in... minutes, so give us a rating. We'd appreciate it. Uh, you can always reach us at vjplease at gmail Don't feel. Don't be shy. Feel free to drop us some reader mail. We'll happily talk about anything that you would like us to discuss on the show. You can tweet us 
at Vijay Please. We are on Facebook at Vijay Please. And then, of course, as noted, our favorite way of speaking with everybody is our Facebook group because we're middle-aged boomers. So we like Facebook for this sort of thing because that's what we started doing four years ago. It's the Vijay Please Trauma Support Group. Please join us there. And we will see you all next week.